Sees Banks. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Tuesday's Money for Nothing. This is Enid Cho. U.S. Treasuries gave up some of the recent gains yesterday with 10-year Treasury yield back at 2.55%. But a lot of people have been wondering what the bond market's been telling us about the economy. Is it not as strong as we think it is? Well, maybe the bond market is smarter than the people that pay attention to statistics that are published by a government uh, which cannot be trusted. And I'm not so sure that the economy is strengthening, because if you look at some economic-sensitive equities, uh, such as housing, or you look at the number of first-time home buyers, uh, these statistics rather suggest that the economy is hardly expanding. So I think the bond market is not totally stupid. and. Uh, The bond market tends to be run by people that are less emotional than uh, stock buyers. That's Mark Faber on Bloomberg earlier. We'll be talking more about bonds later on in the show. Yesterday was a busy day for the U.S. Department of Justice. It filed criminal charges against Credit Suisse, saying the Swiss bank has uh, helped Americans evade taxes. Apart from paying a $2.5 billion fine, it's also the bank is also expected to plead guilty to the charges. What this means is its future business in the U.S. In the US could be seriously curtailed because government agencies and some pension funds are not allowed to deal with any convicted entities. Just look at what happened to Arthur Anderson after it pleaded guilty during the Enron scandal. The DOJ also filed criminal charges against five Chinese PLA officers for allegedly hacking into companies such as Alcoa, US Steel and Westinghouse Electric. Here's what US Attorney General Eric Holder said. Sorry about that. That was the wrong clip. Here we go again. There seems to be... Um, a, a, In his 2013 a, State of the Union address, President Obama called the theft of corporate secrets by foreign countries and companies, and I quote, a real threat to our security as well as to our economy, unquote. We're here this morning to discuss a matter that proves this threat, warned about by the president, is all too real. Today we are announcing an indictment against five officers of the Chinese People's Liberation Army for serious cybersecurity breaches against six American victim companies. Sorry about that little technical issue there. That, that, that was U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder speaking about the allegations yesterday. The mugshots of these PLA officers, one codenamed Ugly Gorilla, are now pasted all over FBI wanted posters. They're not likely to ever appear in the U.S. courts since they all allegedly work out of Shanghai. Naturally, there's a lot of whispers of pot calling the kettle black. Jerome Caviel, the former Sokgen rogue trader, has finally turned himself into French authorities to serve a three-year jail sentence. He took his time. He spent three months walking all the way from Rome. Here's what he told reporters at the French border yesterday. I totally regret and I'm ashamed to have been part of this system and I let myself get drawn into it. I don't know if that was called ambition. I thought I was doing the right thing. 
So there you go. The trader who lost Sokjan 4.9 billion euros is repentant and he's met the Pope. Here's what I'm dishing up for you today. We'll have another post-election discussion on India. Mark Matthews of Julius Baer will take a close look at Indian stocks with us. Joining from our Admiralty studio is Andrew Koza of DZ Bank. He's going to talk about recent trends in the bond market. Also in the studio is Chinese China economist Steve Wang of Reorient Financial. And I'll also be asking William McGovern, respected anti-corruption lawyer at Coburn Kim, whether Beijing is serious about anti-money laundering campaigns that we're witnessing in Macau. Here's how the Asian shares are looking this morning. The Nikkei is up almost 80 points and it's standing at 14,086 points. The Australian ASX is up 5 points at 5,395 and Seoul is down 3 points at 2,011 points. Earlier, the Dow closed at 16511, up 20 points. The S&P was up 7 points at 1885 and the Nasdaq rose 36 points to 4125. In Europe, the FTSE gave up 11 points to 6844, led by AstraZeneca, which plunged 11 percent after its board rejected Pfizer's final offer of 69.4 billion pounds. The DAX rose 30 points to 9659 and the CAC was up 13 points. The yen is stronger again. It's up 0.3% to trade at 101.49 to the dollar. And gold is more or less flat at $1293. Now, let's say hello to our first guest, Andrew Cosa, Chief Market Strategist at DZ Bank. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning to you. Well, so all eyes will be on tomorrow's Fed minutes for signs of more tapering and when rates are going to rise. Um, It's great to have a bond market expert like yourself here today because a lot has been happening with U.S. Treasury um, yield falling below 2.5% last Thursday. Um, and um, bond prices basically you know, having made gains that surprise a lot of people. What do you think are going to happen to yields in the next few months? Over the course of the next few months, we're expecting yields in both the United States and the Eurozone to be drifting higher from where they are now. We're expecting some better economic numbers to start showing through from the United States on a broader basis and particularly from the Eurozone. And the Fed really is going to be sticking to its task of slowly unwinding the exceptional policy stimulus that has been in place. So today's Fed minutes are likely to show that everybody was committed to continuing on the 10 billion per month tapering course and that there's no need to raise rates just yet, but they will be reviewing the data in approximately a year's time to refine their outlook for where short-term interest rates should be going. Okay, so it sounds like you disagree with what Mark Faber was saying on Bloomberg earlier. We heard a clip um, at the beginning of the show. He's saying basically that the bond market is right. The economy still sucks. I don't think I'd put it in terms of still sucks. But, uh, the, the, <laughs> Maybe that's a bit strong. Sorry. That's, a, but that's fine. Uh, the U.S. economy is on, or has shown some signs of weakness in the early part of the year. Much of that was weather related. Mr. Faber is indeed correct that the housing market data of late has been somewhat disappointing. But the housing market had a very good run year and a half, two years ago. So I think this is just a bit of a correction coming into it. And the overall prospects of the United States economy look pretty good to us. Now, Europe, um, you, you, you're saying that Europe is on the path to recovery. Um, now, we are expecting the European Central Bank at its next meeting in June to 
do something about the rather awful set of data we saw um, last week. Um, Eurozone growth was a mere 0.2% in the first quarter. Now, the, the Spiegel, the German magazine, had a scoop on Sunday saying the bank is going to cut its main refinancing rate and it's going to introduce a negative rate on bank deposit for the first time, but it's not going to start another round of bond buying. Do you think that this is the right strategy by the ECB? The situation in the Eurozone is that the recovery is underway, but it's a very, very slow recovery. And one of the main problems of the Eurozone economy, unemployment is still very, very high, unacceptably high at over 12% on average. So the ECB needs to be seen to be doing something, not least because fiscal policy, taxing and spending by governments, in other words, is constrained by agreements that government signs up to during the course of the Eurozone crisis. So there's very little room for manoeuvre on the fiscal front. So monetary policy has to do all the heavy work of lifting the economy out of recession. Mm. What the ECB will choose to do in terms of rate cuts, maybe a negative deposit rate, I think that they need to be heading in that direction with their thoughts. But personally, I'm a little bit sceptical about what such moves will actually deliver and the time gap between the ECB acting, say, in June and people seeing results. Typically, with monetary policy changes, you see a lag of approximately six months before any changes wow, start to happen. Long. Yes, <laughs> in the economy. Okay. Um, now, let's move on to Asia for a bit. There's a new report out yesterday by HSBC showing that Asian economies, a lot of them, are extremely reliant on credit for growth. And overall debt in the region has ballooned to over 200% of regional GDP. Um, so the, there are three countries where they say credit growth has exceeded GDP growth, and they are China, Malaysia, and Thailand. Um, after the European debt crisis, are we likely, do you think, to see another Asian debt crisis? I don't think we're going to see an Asian debt crisis of the likes that we saw back in 1998-1999. Uh, to take China, first of all, Yes, debt has expanded there considerably, but the whole banking system and the whole uh, nature of the financial system in China is state-controlled. So the People's Bank of China is aware of the problem, and they have a big arsenal of tools that they can use to control what is happening in the banking and the credit sector. Thailand, and I think Indonesia was the other one you mentioned? Uh, Malaysia. Malaysia, I beg your pardon. Thailand, as I note this morning, seems to have uh, a little bit of a political problem this morning with martial law having been introduced. So that makes it a little bit more difficult to assess the situation. I would be a little bit more concerned about Thailand because of the political uncertainty there and the impact it's Mm. having on the economy. Growth is slowing, export performance is getting worse, tourist receipts are not as strong as they were. So probably the Thai foreign exchange reserve position is not as healthy and the banking sector can't get uh, support from outside as easily. And Malaysia, um, I think they are going to be able to get through okay because they're not as inflexible in their economy as they were before. They've boosted their foreign exchange reserves and they don't have quite such a uh, precarious position as they did over 10 years ago. Excellent. Thank you for that, Andrew. Um, If you don't have a meeting to rush off to, do do feel free to stay on for the next discussion. Um, We've been talking quite a bit about uh, Chinese the Chinese property market slowdown on recent shows, and it's, it's casting quite a shadow on the market. So we've invited Steve Wang of Reorient Finance to join our show today. Let's see what he makes of it. Good morning, Steve. Hi, good morning. 
thank you for coming to the studio. Sure. Now, Shanghai Composite um, Index fell another 1.1% yesterday to a three-week mm-hmm. low. And I think a lot of people are saying it's to do with the fall in April home price growth in China that we had um, a couple of days ago. So, Steve, what I don't understand is, look, it's still growing. Growth has been slowing for months. Uh, prices are still going up 6.9% year on year on average. Why do you think people are feeling nervous now? Sure, I think really because like we are seeing a uh, a turnaround in terms of buyer sentiments. Buyers are really fleeing the scene, and they're really not picking up apartments as they used to be. I remember when in the past year and a half we had buyers buying apartments uh, in a line overnight, and that's that's nowhere to be found in China now. And does that really creates a fear of panic and a fear of? Of a prolonged ter- turn uh, downturn in the market to come, so that's even though we're seeing still uh, higher prices right now compared to a year ago, but on a monthly basis we're seeing prices sort of just stagnating. So in the coming uh, couple of months, we're definitely going to see prices coming off. And, mm. and prices, yeah. if they're stagnating, people wouldn't want to buy because they think they're going to fall. They might as well wait for them to fall lower, like exactly. they have in Hong Kong. Yeah, exactly. Now, it's, it, I think it's important to remember that the Beijing government does want does want to cool down the property market, right? Indeed. And only a very few, only a very few smaller cities have started relaxing hmm. home buying restrictions. But do you think that Beijing is getting worried because it has just ordered banks to issue more mortgages to first time buyers? Absolutely. I think with the with every Thing we look at in the Chinese economy, I think the housing market is one of the most irrational market you have. Mm. I mean, on the way up, you know, people just cannot stop buying despite every cautious word from the Beijing government. And on the way down, well, I think you probably should expect the same. And so that you know, even though Beijing government has said, "Look, you know, if you're a real buyer, we will supply you with credit if you have a job and this and that," but. You know what are like you just said, right? Those buyers who are potential buyers who are good uh, risk and to the banks are not necessarily uh, stupid enough to jump in right now. I mean, they are all looking at the market. They're still in time to trying to find a better entrance point. Um, Andrew, thank you for staying on. Um, you were saying earlier that um, the government should have everything in control, even though the uh, the property market is slowing down and there's an awful lot of. Debts out there, borne by not just banks, home buyers, and also local governments. Um, but how, do you think that the, the government has enough money to bail everyone out when it all falls apart? If it all falls apart, <laughs> which I personally think is unlikely to happen. Okay. And um, so, uh, Steve, back to you. Yeah. Um, yesterday on the show, Owen Sams of Standard Chartered picked out. Uh, a couple of developers hmm. that he likes because he thinks that okay we're going to start seeing some consolidation in the industry so the big ones the big strong ones like Vanka and Sunak are going to their their shares are probably going to go back up do you think that um, developers focusing on certain cities may perhaps be more protected from the downturn in the run-up, we have seen the tier one city like Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, and Guangzhou done the best. I mean, there is a very clear answer to why that is the case because that's where the jobs are. So there is a natural tendency for people to want to buy houses there despite everything that's happening. But in the more recent data points, we have seen that 
the larger cities are also falling just as the same. I mean, they're pulling back in terms of the, uh, the, the pace of growth. So there's really not much difference between the large and small cities right now. And we're seeing actually Beijing reporting a small month-to-month decline. So all the signs are saying that uh, the whole correction is actually intensifying. Mm. Yeah, so this is really a, a time where we want to see the government stepping up measures to uh, resuscitate the market, put confidence back. As long as we can and, and engineer a soft landing in the market, I think we're not going to see much of an industry fall out. And I think uh, what you mentioned about uh, the, the analyst who came on the show yesterday, the bigger developers are certainly more flush in terms of liquidity. So mm-hmm. I talked to a lot of uh, credit guys, and they are all pretty comfortable with the bigger players and holding their bonds. I think bond issuance in that sector has still fair and pretty strong. But the lower, lower, the smaller guy, the lower, lower tier developer who potentially face higher risk of defaults could be an acquisition target. And from that perspective, they could be actually more interesting play by equity players. Good point. Good point. Thank you very much for coming to the studio today. That's Steve Wang, Research Director at Reorient Financial. The one market that's roaring ahead this week is, of course, India. Stock markets are up 14% in local currency terms. A lot of people are still pretty euphoric this week after Narendra Modi won the election. Now, we've just heard that Arun Jaitley is rumoured to be the next finance minister. He's got a pretty big job ahead of him. So what does he need to do first and what are the sectors that are going to benefit the most under Modi's India. Let's ask Mark Matthews, Head of Asia Research at Julius Baer. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Um, We would like you to help us take a look at um, what sort of sectors investors should focus on as the Indian stock market goes from strength to strength. Well, I would pick uh, probably three, and one is mid-caps, which I guess isn't the sector, but I think the interesting thing about mid-caps is that they're the kind of stocks that retail investors like to own. And uh, what we've noticed in India is that retail investors uh, have been basically out of the market for the last few years. They only own about $300. Uh, billion dollars worth of Indian equities. It's an extremely small amount in the context of 1.2 trillion total uh, market cap. Mm-hmm. And yet the average Indian, uh, sorry, the, the, uh, uh, the combined uh, household savings of India are about uh, $400 billion per year. So easily, I think the retail investor could get and will get back into the market. They've been absent for it for many years, and, and mid-caps are a place they would naturally gravitate but why, to. But why is and that? Then, yeah. Why wouldn't they just go for the big blue chips? Well, I guess because they, you know, they, they, they like sort of slightly more speculative things when they invest in stocks. But uh, the other two, which are more fundamental, are uh, basically uh, infrastructure and banks. And uh, I think infrastructure is, is clearly one of the major problems in India. Uh, and if we look at uh, Narendra's Modi's track record in Gujarat, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's very obvious if you just go to Gujarat, that its infrastructure is far superior to anywhere else in India. So we can expect him to spend a lot on infrastructure. Uh, He's already said he's in favor of big projects, sort of China-style highways and ports and things like that. And then the last sector I would pick is banks, um, because uh, public banks in particular are very uh, inexpensive. And um, 
with less corruption and, and more technology and, uh, and uh, less bureaucracy, um, I also think they could become a lot more profitable too. Okay. Now, okay, we all know that India, in the Indian government ought to spend a lot more infrastructure, but where does it find the money? It hasn't got the money. The government debt is junk rated. S&P said on Friday, Modi needs to do something about the fiscal deficit in the next two to three months. Um, well, Modi's got uh, basically two major uh, parts of his campaign platform. And the first is to uh, reduce bureaucracy, which is another way of saying reduce corruption. So I think that just a little like China, the mere fact that uh, there will be less corruption in the system should lead to uh, greater tax collection. Um, and the second point would be uh, removing subsidies. That's the other part of his platform. So if there's less subsidies that the government is paying, uh, it means more money that the government is keeping right. for itself. And of course, if the economy starts growing again, which I expected to, the government will be collecting more tax revenues as well. Now, one way they're planning to, one way that Modi's um, government plans to get growth back is to look at the interest rate. High inflation has made life hell for a lot of poor people in India, especially. April's consumer price index was at a three-month high of 8.6%. But um, Aaron Jaitley, um, this person who um, is rumoured to be the next finance minister, has said India just cannot afford high interest rates. So how can you get the balance? How, how can he lower inflation without using interest rates as a tool? Or are they just going to put inflation aside? Well, the, the major culprit in inflation, in my opinion, has been the grain subsidy that Congress introduced in 2009. And they didn't mean for this to happen, but what happened was that when farmers realized they would get a set price in wheat and rice, they started growing that and they stopped growing so many vegetables. And, um, and so as they stopped growing so many vegetables, the price of vegetables uh, skyrocketed. And it's really vegetable prices that are the major culprit behind inflation in India. Um, Hence the, um, and, and the, un so, the stockpiling you know, yeah. of onions and <laughs> by yeah, ordinary right. families. No, literally, uh, onions are the big culprit, on onions and tomatoes, actually. So if they can um, you know, remove the, uh, the, the grain subsidy, and the major issue in India is uh, at least 20, probably more like 25% of food production is wasted due to inefficient distribution. When you go to India you know, and you eat uh, the food, uh, it's sad to say, but the reason it tastes so good is because it's all local. They have a, a totally inefficient distribution system. So you, if you're eating onions and potatoes, you know, they'll come right from the area where you are. They're not distributed nationwide. Mm. So with a, more, uh, with a more efficient train system and uh, road system, which are also, uh, in particular, the train, big projects that Modi's committed to, um, I hope we could also see, um, you know, a resolution and the rampant food inflation of the past few years. And about time too. Now, before I let you go, what about the rupee? It's at an 11-month high and um, exporters are suffering as a result. You know, the rest of the stock market may be soaring ahead, but companies like Tata Consultancy Services fell nearly 6% yesterday because of the rupee. Um, is, are exporters to be avoided? I think they should, actually, because I would expect more rupee strength on the back of this uh, victory for Modi. I don't want to uh, sound all uh, naive and, um, and uh, too bullish, but I really do think that this is a, uh, an event which will put India on the map, uh, on the global map, in a, in a way it has not been relevant, perhaps not even since the Mughal Empire. 
And so um, if we, you know, if we think that a lot of the things that you and I have been talking about could actually come true, um, then then the, ru- the rupee could continue to appreciate. Um, and when I look at the money that's gone into India, I would guess that probably about a third of it is so-called hot money, ETF mm-hmm. and hedge fund, and that is always kind of, you know, vulnerable to departure. But the other money, the two-thirds uh, remainder of, of uh, money that's gone in, is basically non-resident Indians and, uh, and long-only hedge funds. Uh, sorry, long-only funds. And so I think, um, you know, those guys and they're will, here will to stay, stay in right? and, and probably keep even by more. So Great. I think the rupee should appreciate from here. Thank you very much for that, Mark. That's Mark Matthews of Julius Bear. The time now is 8.27, and this is Money for Nothing. There's a crackdown in Macau on union pay card swiping services. This is basically a cashback service offered by retailers and pawn shops. And it's a common way for mainland gamblers to dodge restrictions on how much cash they can take out of the country. Businesses in Macau charge money for this service and they know it's dodgy. So they pretend there's a genuine transaction. For example, pretending a customer has bought a Rolex and it's immediately returning it for a refund. And it's been ignored by Macau officials for years. Finally, the government seems determined to crush this source of funds, which Reuters says contributes to about 600 billion US dollars that's smuggled out of China each year. Looking at this story with me today is William McGovern, a former US government lawyer based in law firm Cobra and Kim's Hong Kong office. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thanks, Enid. Thanks for having me. So you are an anti-corruption expert, formerly with the Division of Enforcement at the SEC in the U.S. You know how to track down the bad guys, right? So why do you think it's taken Macau officials so long to act? This illegal cashback activity is firmly in their jurisdiction, isn't it? It it is. I think there are a couple challenges that are unique to the union pay card. Um, first is to, uh, to, to, you know, stepping back for a moment, in the West, the way um, banks and financial institutions patrol money laundering is through uh, an extensive use of sort of frontline guardians, bank tellers, uh, customer account representatives. They have obligations to report suspicious uh, activity that they see kind of at the front lines, and then banks have follow-up uh, requirements to investigate and, and really pursue and try to dig out and, and uh, eradicate money laundering that is happening through their institutions. So isn't union pay the front line? Well, in the, in the union pay scenario, the front line uh, is the variety of jewelry stores and, right. and sort of uh, side alley, back alley uh, uh, um, retailers that are willing to process these transactions. Um, and so it becomes very difficult for for um, uh, potential. The thing is, but they're so visible, in. though. If you go to Macau, like they've got big neon signs outside their shop saying "card swiping service." <laughs> it, yeah, and I think that's why this is coming to the forefront now. I think it's crept uh, enough into the um, into the, the, the limelight and the spotlight for Macau to really want to take action. And what are the other ways for people to dodge the restrictions on uh, taking money out of the country? I mean, the restrictions are, I think, individuals can only take out 50,000 US dollars a year. Mainland cash cards can only withdraw up to 10,000 renminbi a day at foreign ATM machines. So what are the other tricks? Yeah, I mean, typically what's what's used, uh, you know, money laundering is really the, the top line crime, meaning uh, underneath that are a variety of other illegal activities that people are engaged in. They use money laundering as a way to, uh, to deal with, so narcotics trafficking, um, uh, tax evasion, 
uh, terrorist financing, and money laundering becomes just the structure or the vehicle to get uh, the money out of the illegal activity. So, there, you know, often um, it, it, there are, are fin- you know, very complex financial transactions that, that can be used to disguise the proceeds of illegal activity and, and make them available in a clean form, if you will, or a legitimate form uh, to, to the wrongdoer. Uh, typically involves use of financial institutions, banks, and so forth to, to structure those, those, those transactions. Mm-hmm. This scenario is different. Uh, you know, with, with the union pay card and potentially the role of, of casinos, uh, perhaps in, in, uh, you know, in, in, in the bank legitimizing the transaction. So it requires a lot of cooperation across countries sure. uh, and across multiple businesses to, to enforce. So overall, do you think this crackdown is going to affect Macau's gam- and gambling revenue, which hasn't been hit yet, um, even though Beijing has been on a big anti-corruption drive? Yeah, I, I, you know, just by the numbers reported in the press, I, I imagine it would have to have some impact if, if there's a successful crackdown. It, it really remains to be seen how um, serious the enforcers are about getting at this and, and how hard they're willing to work at it. Great. Thank you very much for joining the show. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. That was Bill McGovern, lawyer with Kim and Kim, uh, sorry, Cobra and Kim. The weather is going to be mainly cloudy with a few showers and thunderstorms. There are sunny intervals during the day. It will get as hot as 31 degrees and the current temperature is 28 degrees. This is Ian